So I want to ask you a question this morning. Have you ever gotten into rock climbing? I don't know what it is about us guys, but we like sports that require gear, don't we? There was a time in college that I got into rock climbing just enough to get some of the gear. And some of you that have done some rock climbing, you know a little bit what that is. You've got to have a rope, and you have to be careful with your rope. This is a very precious thing. You don't want to overly sweat on your rope. You don't want to be rough with your rope. They even say if you take a hard fall on your rope, you're supposed to discard it and get another one. Ouch. You have to make sure if you're top roping that it's not rubbing and you have to get it all set up just right. So that means you have to get some webbing and then you have to have some carabiners and maybe some quick draws. You want to have a locking carabiner, right? The lock so that when you clip in, you can then spin the thing and then you're there. You are secured. Now, you wouldn't do this to your belt in your Sabbath suit, you understand. You would put on the harness. And I thought about putting on the harness, but I think that would be awkward both for you and for me. So I have simply disregarded that part of it. But then if you want to be a good climber, you need to have the shoes and you need to have a chalk bag because if you're like me, your hands get sweaty. Then you have to have a good, a good weather day because if the rock is too cold, that makes it challenging. If it's too hot, then you're sweating. And so that is all part of it. So here we have a few different pictures of all of the gear. And let me tell you, a helmet is another piece that you want. And then you have to learn which knots to tie. You know, I remember using the double fisherman's knot for my webbing, and I still use that from time to time. The figure eight that you see here is very important. Will never pull out, so they say. But that's very important because you're trusting your life to this and to this and to this, right? kind of a big deal. And so when you tally up and people come with big heavy backpacks to the foot, for us it was Sunset Rock or some rocks that we found on Raccoon Mountain and other places, but you bring your big backpack and you oftentimes put a tarp down and you display everything out there, you're talking about a lot of money, a lot of equipment. Ugh. Now we were just top roping. That means you you run your rope up through the top, kind of like a pulley system. It's not a pulley, but anyway, you run it through, and the person down below is belaying you, so if at any point you fall, and as you go up one step, they tighten, and they tighten. So there's just that stretch of the rope if something were to go wrong. But if you're going to take it to the next level, then you're going to start doing some lead climbing. And that's where I take this. I more or less clip it onto the back, and you stay down here below, and I'm going to go up, up, up a little ways, and then I'm going to plant... If there's not a lead or something, I'll plant one of these cams or something else, and I'll hook the rope through there with another carabiner or a quick draw, and then I'll go a little bit further. And the idea then is if I fall, I'll fall a little further, but not to the bottom. So I'll get scraped up and the whole thing. That's taking it to another level. Now, there's another level beyond that, and we'll talk about that here in a minute. But my question to you is, when you look at this screen of all this stuff, what is the point why do people get all of this gear? Well, it's really for one simple reason. For climbing the rock, yes. But more than that is to make sure that you are clipped in. So that if anything happens, at any point your hands get too sweaty, or you, you think you have this good handhold and, and you don't, and your, your grip breaks away, or your footing slips, or whatever might happen, you are secure, right? It's kind of the point. Of all of this stuff. But then if you take it up a level beyond that, it's something they call free solo. 
And that's where you leave the rope behind and you just do exactly that. You free solo. You're just climbing. Here's a picture of one of the lead climbers right now. But I want to talk about Brad Gobright. He was born in Orange County, California in 1988. He began climbing when he was just six years old, and very quickly he became addicted. He climbed every rock he could find. In his late 20s, he started to be noticed for his incredible skills in the sport. And so here you have a few magazines, an outside magazine and Rock Climbers magazine, all noticing how he was really up and coming in this sport and the things that he was starting to do. Next great free soloist, have mercy. Here's a picture with two of his friends, Alex Honold and Tommy Caldwell, I believe is how you pronounce it. They're in Yosemite Valley. And if any of you have been to Yosemite Valley, you know that rock climbers are there. Yosemite is the mecca for rock climbers, known as the center of the universe for rock climbers. And climbers refer to El Capitan as the most impressive wall on earth. It's 3,200 feet of sheer granite. And so in 2015, Gobright set out to climb the entire face without being tied in. To climb it free solo, if you will. This time lapse gives you some idea of the magnitude of the rock as the video goes for almost three minutes. As you see those little things that look like ants, nope, they're people making their way up the ledge. Now there are many routes up the face of El Cap. And Gobright and a friend, Mason Earl, made their first, or the first, free ascent up what the route that's known as the heart route without being tied in. They were the first ones. Check that off their list. In 2016, he and a friend, Scott Bennett, climbed to the top of El Capitan using three different routes, the Zodiac, the Nose, the Lurking Fear, and the record was made because they did all three of those free solo in a 24-hour period. Have mercy. Then in 2017, he and Jim Reynolds set a speed record of two hours and 19 minutes and 44 seconds for the nose on El Capitan. For most climbers to get up to a, a place that they call sickle can take as much as a day to get up there. For Gobright, he was there in less than 15 minutes the day that he set this record, which was later made into a documentary called 2-1944, named after the time it took him to make it to the top. Unfortunately, two years later, in June of 2019, his record was beat by two of his buddies. They set out to do it in under two hours, and their final time, and the current standing record now that I'm aware of, is one hour and 58 minutes bottom of the valley to the top on the route called the nose. But what happened to Gobright? Well, it's not the end of the story. He and a friend were simul-repelling, which is where two people are repelling simultaneously, if you will, on opposite ends of the same rope. And so the rope is, is somewhere attached on the top, and they were both making their way down, and your weights have to be very similar, and you have to be paying attention to one another. And oftentimes they will tie a safety knot at the bottom, because if you're repelling and it just goes through your figure eight or ATC or whatever, 
but that can be a pain because the knot can get super tight and hard to undo, and they didn't think they needed it, but as they were rappelling down, sure enough, the rope was not as long as they needed it to be. And then his friend Jacobson felt a pop as Gobright went off the bottom of the rope. His friend tumbled about 20, 30 feet to a ledge and suffered some ankle issues that wasn't too serious, but Gobright tumbled all the way down 600 feet to his death. It's amazing he did not die during a free solo climb, but the fact remains that at 31 years of age, he was no more. And I'll submit to you, it was because he was not properly clipped in. And the risk cost him his life. Today we're continuing our series on final events. We've been going through this. This is actually now number six, if you've been keeping track. And we've been dealing with a lot of these various issues, and I won't take the time to repeat through some of those things and the things that we've learned, but we're on the latter rain and the loud cry this morning. But today I'm entitling my message, Praying for the Latter Rain. And as we go through this study about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit is useful to us now, but how it will be of equal and greater importance on into the future, and how truly the Holy Spirit is our lifeline. It is our connection that will see us through to the end. And whatever crisis we may face, either today or on into the future, you will be okay as long as you are clipped in, if you will, to the Holy Spirit. This isn't just an add-on. This isn't just a a touchy-feely, you know, this is nice. No, this is vital. This is essential. And without the Holy Spirit, we're doomed, truly. No matter how good our skill set that we think it is and and how much knowledge we think we have and so on and so forth, if we don't have the Holy Spirit, we're asking for trouble. And so I want to begin our study. If you brought your Bibles, I hope you did. We're in Acts chapter 2, and I want to begin by looking at this early rain experience before we move on into the latter rain experience. And so we're in the book of Acts chapter 2. And I'll begin in verse 1. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as if rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is a description of the early rain experience, when the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. And what was accomplished as a result? Well, in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we see two main things. It empowered their proclamation as well as empowered their demonstration. And we'll be unpacking those a little bit. But let's talk about that first one, empowering their proclamation. 
If we just let our eyes drop down to verse 8, it says, And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? So here they are given, through the power of the Holy Spirit, they are empowered to proclaim with greater power this idea that they just speak, but others are hearing it in their own language, and it lists off the various languages. This is a miracle of God. And why? So that the gospel won't be hindered by language. It will be understood by people of other languages that they didn't know. And they're saying, this is phenomenal. This is incredible. In fact, the word for tongues, we see the same word used in Revelation 14, 6 in the three angels' message. It will go to every nation, language, tongue, same word, and people. To everyone. And so very quickly in the time of Acts, the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ went to every part of the then known world. And this is amazing. This is a testimony of the power of God through the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. And so first, it's the empowering their proclamation, but number two, it's empowering their demonstration to enable to meet the challenges that were ahead of them. As tradition tells us, All of Jesus' remaining disciples, along with Paul and many others, died a martyr's death. But the Holy Spirit provided them with courage, with holy boldness, with compassion for the lost, and with a peace in their hearts. I like this verse, Isaiah 27, verse 5. Let him take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. Have you found yet that Jesus gives you what you need just when you need it? Our high calling, page 125, says the promise is not that we will have strength today for future emergency. We may, if we walk by faith, expect strength and provision for us as fast as our circumstances demand it. So that's saying when you need, it's there, but not until then. Sometimes we say, Jesus is never late, but he's always right on time. Continue with this quote, we live by faith, not by sight. The grace of tomorrow will not be given today. Men's necessity is God's opportunity. I like that. Because some of us and some of you may be going through your own time of trouble even now, and you need just a little bit more. And guess what? There's no shortage of supply of the Holy Spirit. And when you need it, it will be given unto you, full measure. That's a beautiful promise. Continuing, it says, we will not be able to meet the trials of this time without God. We are not to have the courage and fortitude of martyrs of old until brought into the position they were in. We are to receive daily supplies of grace for each daily emergency. I like this verse too, Deuteronomy 33, verse 25. And as thy days, so shall thy strength be. So friends, if I can distill the latter rain experience down, it's simply this. As we need more, God gives more. As the time demands more, God provides more. As our challenges are greater, God's supply is greater. And notice this promise in Spirit of Prophecy. 
Volume A of the Testimonies for the Church, page 21. The outpouring of the Spirit in the days of the apostles was the former reign, and glorious was the result. There's no question as we read through the book of Acts that the result is glorious. But it continues, but the latter reign will be more abundant. So the apostles of old took the gospel to the then known world through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But this is telling us that we will see God's people in the last days not just do the same thing, but more. The latter rain will be even more abundant. And friends, the Holy Spirit is not something that we have to wait for. It's available now. God wants to use us now. The early rain experience was not just for the apostles of old, but it's our experience today and today and today. We are to pray and ask for the Holy Spirit every day. But the reality still remains as we get closer to the end of time and as we enter into Jacob's time of trouble, as the challenges become greater, God's Spirit becomes greater and the latter rain is poured out to give us and empower us for proclamation and demonstration of who God is. Here's another quote. At no point in our experience can we dispense with the assistance of that which enables us to make the first start. The blessings received under the former reign are needful to us to the end. And so from our conversion, it's the Holy Spirit that draws us to Jesus, and at no point are we beyond the assistance or need of the Holy Spirit. Continuing testimonies of ministers and gospel workers, 507 and 508, as we seek God for the Holy Spirit, it will work in us meekness, humbleness of mind, a conscious dependence upon God for the perfecting latter rain. So we need the early rain experience, which are the fruits of the Spirit, if you will, having the Holy Spirit in our hearts and our lives, so we can be ready to receive the latter rain. How is he going to give more if I don't have any to begin with? Now, I also want to take you some Bible verses that you probably heard before that show us how we should be preparing for this latter rain of the Holy Spirit. And notice that we should not expect the latter rain to be poured out on us if we're not asking for it. God's a gentleman. He doesn't barge in. But if we're asking, if we're seeking, if we're desiring, if we're emptying of self, God longs to give it to us. Zechariah 10, verse 1, our scripture reading, ask the Lord for rain. Just ask. Ask the Lord for rain. In the time of the latter rain, the Lord will make flashing clouds. He will give them showers of rain, grass in the field for just a few No, it says for everyone, everyone that asks, that desires. So he's not trying to keep the latter rain from anyone. And so God is saying if you ask, and remember there's an experience that we need to face, the crisis today, but it's also the experience that we will need to face the crisis of earth's history. And so this Holy Spirit is necessary both now and then. 
So that's why we're talking about the loud rain and loud cry today, because how are we going to stand through the final crisis? How are we going to be ready and able to stand through these momentous events that bring this world's history to an end? Friends, it is only through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it is only by asking today and today and today until he comes, because the challenges will simply increase. And so we pray for a double portion, a triple portion, a latter rain portion of his spirit. Are there reasons? That's the question we need to ask. Are there reasons why the latter rain has not been poured out? I want to take a look at what the prophet Jeremiah says. This is the young prophet Jeremiah. Some scholars feel he may have only been 12 or 13 years old. And this young lad is speaking to the Jewish nation, God's people, just before they were taken into captivity by Babylon. But I think this could be said of us. Modern Israel, God's remnant people, again when the deceptions of Babylon are again trying to overtake God's people just before the end of the world. But I have to warn you, this is not a soft message. Jeremiah chapter 3 The first three verses, Jeremiah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. They say, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again? Would not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers. God is saying, if a man puts his wife away and she goes to another man, you don't go back to that woman that is polluted or defiled territory. And God is saying, that's what it's been like for me. You have played the harlot with many lovers. But do we see in this verse that God is casting away the harlot? What does he say in the last line of this verse? He says, yet return to me, says the Lord. How gracious our God is that in the midst of our sinful condition, he invites us back anyway. Then verse 2, it says, lift up your eyes to the desolate heights and see. Where have you not lain with men? By the road you have sat by them like an Arabian in the wilderness, and you have polluted the land with the harlots and your wickedness. He's basically saying, look at the hills around you. Is there any hill that you have not worshipped other gods and played the prostitute? That's strong language. Folks, I believe this passage is asking us, it's asking me to look at the high places in my life today. What television programs, what movies have you been watching? What things have you been looking at on the internet? How have you been spending your time? Look at your career, your life's path, your goals, your ambitions. And you think you're on your way to heaven. But could it be said of us that we are actually putting God in the background? Have we made things of this world our idol? Yet God is saying in his grace, yet return to me. But as a result of the actions of God's people in playing with the harlotry and idolatry of this modern world, notice what God says to his prophet in verse 3. Therefore the showers have been 
withheld. Somebody's quick to say, that's not us. But verse 3 tells us, therefore the showers have been withheld. How come we haven't seen the latter rain? Because we played the harlot. We've had idols on all these hills. Find a hill around me. Therefore, the showers have been withheld, and there has been no latter rain. That's speaking of now. You have had a harlot's forehead. You refuse to be ashamed. The NIV says you have the brazen look of a prostitute. You refuse to blush with shame. What does Jesus say at the Laodicean church? You need the garment of my righteousness to cover the shame of your nakedness. And yet the church refuses to be ashamed. We're the Laodicean church, lukewarm. But we think we are rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And we refuse to blush. We refuse to be ashamed. And what's the mantra of this world? Be true to yourself. And over and over again, we hear the testimonies from the boy, the girl, the transgender. It doesn't matter what you are as long as you are true to yourself. And the audience applauds and celebrates their courage in standing against the holy word of God. Friends, that's a lie from the pit. Not true. be true to yourself, be true to God and to his word. For my heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can know it? This idea that I have to be true to myself is to distrust God and the simple fact that he alone knows what's best for me. The simple fact is he alone can provide for all of my needs. He alone can give life and give it more abundantly. He alone can be my protector and deliver. He alone is my strength and my wisdom. So don't buy into this lie to be true to yourself. Be true to God. How does that verse go that we all know so well? Seek ye first you and everything that makes sense to you and makes your heart happy. Look after you, be true to you, to your little heart's content. And all these things can get in line and take a number. Is that what Jesus said? Not at all. Is that what Jesus lived? Not at all. Friends, Jesus had one shot on this earth. Did he fill it with good times? Learning how to surf and fast cars, beautiful women, fancy homes, new clothes for a new season. Seeing the seven wonders of the world. Seeking after entertainment at every chance he got. And the best eateries in town. Oh, have you tried this? It's delectable. (laughs) Is that the legacy he leaves for us? The verse that I'm familiar with is, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. This was the life Jesus lived. This is the example he left for us. How many times did Jesus say, My will is to do the will of my Father in heaven. This idea, I have been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. Jesus Christ now lives in me and the world doesn't get it it doesn't understand it and it doesn't advertise it but that doesn't stop making it truth we know from bible prophecy that we are the end time church we are the laodicean church 
but why aren't we blushing? The fact that we're laid to see in church is not a badge of honor, but rather should lead us to our knees as we recognize our spiritual nakedness, that adultery is not okay. And friends, just because we see others around us doing this or doing that does not make it okay. They are not the standard. Church members, church leaders, church pastors are not the standard. Jesus Christ is the standard. So why has the latter rain been withheld? Because of our idolatry. Our little idols. But in His grace, the invitation is still extended. Return unto me. Pray for the latter rain during this time. Repent and turn from your idols and God will pour out his latter rain blessing on you and on me. It says in verse four, you will not from this time cry to me, my father, you are the guide of my youth. He's saying, will you not cry out? Let me lead you. I realize that some here at this point might be a little offended by some of the things that I'm saying. Perhaps you're saying to yourselves, Pastor, you're telling me that I'm playing the harlot? To which I would respond, no. God's prophet is. And you can either be deeply offended and not blush and defend yourself, or you can fall on your knees in repentance. For the truth that exists in these verses in regards to you and to me. The good news, if we receive this message and repent and obey God and receive purification from Him, we can receive this outpouring of the latter rain. In continuing our study, I invite you to turn back to the book of Acts. This time we're going to be in chapter 3. And it's in chapter 3 that we see the timing of the latter rain in connection with the progression of last day events. And so we're in Acts chapter 3 now, in verse 19. It says, Repent, therefore, and be converted. Repentance. This is true heart conversion. And it's a big part of this message. The church has been unconverted. It's been connected to idolatry and playing the part of the harlot. And God says, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now this is the outpouring of the latter rain. And then verse 20, and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before. That's the second coming. And so if we can break this down a little bit in a sequence of events. First, the church has played the harlot, as we just read in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 1. Second, there is this call for repentance and true heart conversion. It brings about two things, the blotting out of sin and the outpouring of the latter rain from the sanctuary. And then you have the final blotting out of sin is the close of probation. And lastly, you have the second coming of Jesus. 
But for us this morning, the call is for repentance, for true heart conversion. But in so many churches today, repentance seems to be a bad word. Have you noticed that? Don't point out my sin. Don't point out my worldliness. You should just be happy that I'm here. And if you offend me, I'll walk and I won't come back. And I don't want to offend anybody. But we do need to speak the truth in love, don't we? Don't talk to me about my dress. Don't talk to me about my diet. Don't talk to me about my choices of entertainment, the movies I watch, the websites I visit, the music I listen to, the way I spend my time. Don't step on my toes, Pastor. Rather, just pat me on the back. Encourage me in my average Laodicean life and tell me that I'll be in heaven regardless of my choices and my bad habits and my rebellious attitude. But that's not the message we see here. The message is to repent and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Isn't that what we want? Then why are we holding on to this world? Why are we riding the fence? Why are we too proud to humble ourselves and to repent? Somehow the devil has fooled us into thinking that repentance is awful. But to repent, to confess, to have true heart conversion, truly is the best feeling in the world. To weep before Jesus, to confess it all, and with open arms for him to still receive us, to promise to blot out our sins and give us a greater outpouring of his Holy Spirit is a humbling but amazing feeling. And you'll sleep better than you ever slept before. Church will feel different. Your Bible study will feel different. Your prayers will feel different. Everything will feel more real and rewarding. And this is the new life experience Jesus wants to give to us. But God's a gentleman. He doesn't force anything, but waits for us to respond to his gentle knocking at the door of our hearts, waiting for humble repentance and confession. Let's flip a few more pages, still in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5, verse 32. Another aspect that we can't ignore. Acts chapter 5, verse 32. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Did you catch that last line? Who does God give the Holy Spirit to? Those that obey him. Now wait, this sounds like salvation by works. Is that what this is? No, it's a simple fact that God cannot fill a person that is full of self, but a person that's empty of self, that is obedient to him, he can fill with his spirit. We're saved by grace through faith. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, but that faith produces obedience in our lives. And in response, God is able to fill those people with His Spirit that are living up to all the light that they have received and have chosen to obey Him. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So good works are not the root, but the fruit. Another preacher I like to listen to says there's two dangers. There's the danger that we're saved by what we do, danger number one, and then there's the danger that we're saved regardless of what we do. And they're both ditches on either side of the road. 
But the proof or the truth of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Those are those first two verses. But then you go to verse 10, and it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So don't think that a disobedient life and lifestyle that's open in rebellion to God's word will allow you to receive the outpouring of the latter rain. Scripture is very clear that disobedience, a life of rebellion, will not lead a person to receive the latter rain. But rather, as we've read here in Acts 5.32, the Holy Spirit is given to those who obey. Now I want to turn our attention to the latter rain experience for just a moment. Because the latter rain is connected to a ripened harvest at the end of the world. You've heard this before. In the Jewish economy, the early rain was the rain that came after the seed was planted. So you're putting grass seed in your yard or something. You want that early rain to actually start off and kick off the seed, right? To make it germinate because it's been dormant for so long. And it activates it for growth, causing the seed to come up out of the ground. But then at the end of the harvest cycle, just before the grain is ripe for harvest, there would be another season of rain known as the latter or later rain, right? That would be the final push that the grain would need to become fully ripe. It's been holding back. It's been a little bit dry. It's not sure. But now the soil is so wet and full of all that it needs that the fruit just comes out and becomes ripe. And it's ready for harvest. And that brings about the grain. And so if we read this verse here, in James chapter 5, verse 7, it says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer, which the context is Christ, waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. And continuing in verse 8, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And so here, Christ is waiting for the harvest. He's waiting for the early rain, which was received at Pentecost. And so now he's waiting for the latter rain as he waits patiently for this precious fruit of the earth. Now, sometimes we think that the fruit has been ripe for a long time and God's just trying to add more and more and more fruit. But that's not how farming works, is it? If you just wait for more and more and more and more fruit this summer, you're going to have bad fruit along with good fruit. When it's ripe, it's ripe, and you have to harvest it right then. Notice this verse in Mark chapter 4, verse 28 and 29. For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, after the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. We have enough farmers in the room. You know exactly that when that corn is ripe, it's ripe. And if you wait just one or two days... It's tough. But if you get it at just that right moment, it pops in your mouth. And you can't buy it from the store that way. You have to go out there and you test and you say, today's the day, put the pot of water on. We're having corn tonight. Immediately, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And Jesus is saying, I'm having long patience for my harvest until they receive the latter rain. And the latter rain has not been poured out because by and large God's people are not praying for the latter rain. And why are we not praying for the latter rain? Because we are enjoying the idols of this world and we are content to be lukewarm. 
And we refuse to be ashamed of our sins and our spiritual nakedness because we compare ourselves by ourselves. And so most of the church is like this, so we must be okay. But Jesus is standing at the door knocking and saying, let me come in. And we refuse to let him in because we're fine calling him Savior, but we're just not quite ready to call him Lord. So we're not praying for the outpouring of the latter rain, spoken of Zechariah 10.1, as it tells us to. And then Jeremiah 3, 1 to 3 says, the latter rain has been withheld because we have played the part of the harlot towards God. Yet he still says, return to me. And then in Acts 3, it tells us to repent and be converted. So we as a church are lacking conversion. But when we have a converted church, then the times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord and the blotting out of sin will take place and the latter rain will be poured out and the loud cry can be given, probation will close and Jesus will come back. And immediately when the grain ripens, he puts the sickle because the harvest has come. So what does this grain that is ripe look like? Often it's referred to as the fruits of the Spirit. What's that going to look like in the church? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is how many people view it. It's like a checklist. And this goes along with this idea that I'm going to have to stop sinning, I'm going to have to stop doing all these bad things. Okay, but to think that way is to put it in the wrong framework, I want to suggest to you this morning. Notice it doesn't say these are the fruits of the person. Do you see that there in the the passage anywhere? It says these are the fruits of the Spirit. So Jesus comes into your life, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, you now have His love. You have His joy. You have His peace. You have His patience. You have His kindness, His goodness, His faithfulness, His gentleness, and His self-control. And so really it should look like this. If you're connected to the vine, if you're connected to Jesus, these are the fruits that He will produce in your life. And those good fruits will drive out or replace the bad fruits in your life. Does that make sense? And so rather being this grumpy, legalistic grouch, which sadly some people are in the church today, you can be a happy, joyful Christian, full of the joy of the Lord. And you don't feel perfect because the closer you come to the Lord, the more you know you're not like Him. And you know what you're like when you're disconnected from Him. But Jesus is working to change within. In Christ's Object Lessons, when she quotes Galatians 5.22, the fruits of the Spirit passage we just looked at, she follows up that verse with this quotation. It says, The fruit can never perish, but will produce after its kind a harvest unto eternal life. When the fruit is brought forth, immediately he put it in the sickle because the harvest has come, quoting Mark 4, 28, 29, and it says, Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. We think we're waiting on him. He's waiting on us with longing desire. How long? We don't have to wait beyond a lifetime. How many lifetimes has he been waiting? But we pity ourselves, don't we? Poor me. I've had 47 years on this earth. It's so hard. 
But Christ is waiting with longing desire for a manifestation of himself in his church. And immediately he'll put forth the sickle for harvest. When the character of Christ, this is the context. I'm continuing this quotation now. Okay, so this is the context of this one quote we hear all the time. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. Christ is waiting on you and he's waiting on me. It is the privilege of every Christian, not only to look for, but to hasten the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, quoting 2 Peter 3.12. Were all who profess his name bearing fruit to his glory, how quickly the whole world would be sown with the seed of the gospel. Quickly the last great harvest would be ripened, and Christ would come to gather the precious grain. That's exciting and discouraging all the same time. But friends, don't miss when God's people develop the fruits of the Spirit in our hearts, in our lives, as we surrender our lives, that the Holy Spirit can be seen in our lives. And that fruit is produced very quickly. The whole world will be sown with the seed of the gospel. And Christ will come to gather the precious grain. And we will be much more effective in our evangelistic methods. Amen? Here's another statement that helps us connect the early and latter rain. This one comes from volume 8 of the Testimonies, page 21. The outpouring of the Spirit in the days of the apostles was the former rain, and glorious was the result, but the latter rain will be more abundant. Isn't that amazing? And I believe by God's grace, we'll be a part of it, which is equally amazing. Acts the Apostles, page 55, near the close of earth's harvest, a special bestowal of spiritual grace is promised to prepare the church for the coming of the Son of Man. This outpouring of the Spirit is likened to the falling of the latter rain. I like that, a special bestowal of spiritual grace. Another quote from Great Controversy 464, it says, Before the final visitation of God's judgments upon the earth, there will be among the people of the Lord such a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. But I'm not the harlot. Have we seen the full outpouring of the latter rain? Have we seen this revival of primitive godliness that we have not witnessed since apostolic times? Then maybe we have some repenting to do. It says the spirit and power of God will be poured out upon his children. Friends, this is the future of Adventism. The future of Adventism is not a moral decline into worldliness. It's not being more and more like the world. The future of Adventism is not turning the church into a rock club with dancing and drums and strobe lights and smoke machines. The future of Adventism is not making the church fit into some modern worldly culture in order to appeal and win over people. No, the future of Adventism is a revival of primitive godliness that you and I have yet to witness because it has not been present since apostolic times. But what a powerful thought that it will take place. God will have a people who allow Christ to come in that he may fully produce the fruits of the Spirit as they live obedient lives and receive the outpouring of the latter rain. Friends, by God's grace, that is our future. Not to be more like the world, but to be more like Jesus. And the latter rain is the experience that we need. It is that experience that empowers the loud cry. 
Here's another quote, early writings, 86. At that time, the latter rain, or refreshing from the presence of the Lord, will come to give power to the loud voice of the third angel and prepare the saints to stand in the period when the seven last plagues shall be poured out. So notice, the latter rain is what gives power to the loud cry or the loud voice of the third angel, as well as preparing God's people to stand through the seven last plagues. Early writings 271, I heard those clothed with armor speak forth the truth with great power. I asked what had made this great change. An angel answered, it is the latter rain, the refreshing from the presence of the Lord, the loud cry of the third angel. In the paragraph before this statement, we see the church Laodicean state, but when Laodicea lets Christ come in, it receives the outpouring of the latter rain so we can give the loud cry of the third angel's message. So we've looked at the latter rain. I want to turn our focus a little bit more fully now on the loud cry of Revelation 18, those first five verses, which give us the clearest description of this loud cry. So if you have your Bibles, you're doing great. Just hang in there. Revelation chapter 18. We've read these before, but we're going to read them again. Revelation chapter 18, beginning verse 1, after these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority. And the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. Verse 4, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. So this is a message that comes from heaven, has great power, has great authority. The earth is illuminated with his glory, and this is the character of God that is seen throughout the world. And so the loud cry is both a proclamation and a demonstration of the righteousness of faith or righteousness by faith, I should say. The loud cry is not simply a proclamation of righteousness by faith, but it's a demonstration of righteousness by faith, a demonstration of the character of God and his people. And they are giving the end time, three angels' message of Revelation 14, the message of righteousness by faith. This is the experience that all of us want to be part of. Volume 6 of the Testimonies for the Church, page 19. The message of Christ's righteousness is to sound from one end of the earth to the other to prepare the way of the Lord. This is the glory of God, which closes the work of the third angel. So here we have the message of Christ's righteousness, which is the righteousness by faith message. But you also see the glory of God or the character of God. And this quote is saying they're one and the same. So again, we have to have both, both the proclamation and the demonstration. And this righteousness of Christ will sound from one end of earth to the other. But friends, it's one thing to preach the righteousness of Christ. It's quite another to be a demonstration of the righteousness of Christ. One of the reasons we fail as a church is that we don't actually have the righteousness of Christ. That's the Laodicean experience. Because we're naked spiritually. We think we're rich, however, and we think we're, we have the righteousness of Christ when we really do not. 
When we truly have the righteousness of Christ, we are filled with the Spirit. And that overflows with having the fruits of the Spirit. And then the world will see who Jesus really is through God's last day people. In the midst of the craziest times you can imagine, there will be a people on earth that are demonstrating the character of God. And they will take notice. How come they're so calm? How do they have peace? How do they still have joy? How can they still smile? In the midst of their persecution and and all the things going on around them. What do they have? And when I find out what it is, I want it for myself. And when this happens, it will go around the world from one end to the other. Bible Commentary, Volume 7, 984, it says this, As the third message swells to a loud cry, and as great power and glory attend the closing work, the faithful people of God will partake of that glory. It is the latter rain which revives and strengthens them to pass through the time of trouble. So it will be the latter rain that revives and strengthens us as a people to pass through the time of trouble. It will empower God's people to give the third angel's message with a loud cry that will attend the closing work. Volume 7 of the Testimonies, page 17, as the third angel's message swells into a loud cry, great power and glory will attend his proclamation. The faces of God's people will shine with the light of heaven. What an amazing promise. That our faces will shine with the light of heaven as we give this message. And again, one of the reasons the latter rain has not been poured out yet is because we as a people are full of pride thinking we have something to bring to the table, but God is looking for people that are empty of self, void of self, so that they can be completely filled by His Spirit, so they can demonstrate what Christ's character is truly like. And that can't happen with any part of David still here, that the work may be finished, and so we can go home. Volume 5 of the Testimonies 252, the power which stirred the people so mightily in the 1844 movement will again be revealed. The third angel's message will go forth not in whispered tones, but with a loud voice. Friends, sadly, many churches have bought into this idea that we don't need to be preaching our end-time message on Sabbath morning because that will offend people. Rather, we just need to give them soft and safe messages that will make visitors feel comfortable. And this is a little ironic to me because messages that make me feel comfortable are messages that never confront my sin or my pride or my selfishness. And when it comes to the end of all things, these soft life messages will be anything but safe for those who receive them, lo, these many years. We're supposed to give this message with a loud voice, not with whispered tones. And if we're supposed to do it then, why aren't we doing it now? Why are we ashamed of the very message, this present truth for this time that God has given us to give to the world? Early Writings 278, I saw that this message will close with power and strength far exceeding the midnight cry. Now some of you that have been taking notes, you might be saying, wait a second, I thought the midnight cry was future, the passing of the Sunday loss, synonymous with a loud cry, and you would be correct. But here, in early writings, he's referring to the midnight cry experience. The Millerite movement leading up to October 22, 1844, that we also reference as the midnight cry. 
If it was the true midnight cry, Jesus would be here and we wouldn't be here. In other places, she says that the parable of the ten virgins and the midnight cry that, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, has been fulfilled to the very letter, and will be again at the close of earth's history. That's in Review and Herald, August 1890. And so this midnight cry experience of 1844 will be repeated and exceed that earlier experience in the last days. And if you study Adventist history, that was really something. In fact, this is pre-Advent history, isn't it? This is from letter 86, 1900. It says, The message of the angel following the third is now to be given to all parts of the world. It is to be the harvest message, and the whole earth will be lighted with the glory of God. That's the loud cry message. That's the midnight cry message. The harvest message that will lighten the whole earth with the glory of the character of God. Proclamation and demonstration. Volume 6 of the Testimonies, 401. When the storm of persecution really breaks upon us, then will the message of the third angel swell to a loud cry, and the whole earth will be lighted with the glory of the Lord. A few weeks ago, we talked about the little time of trouble. It's during this little time of trouble when persecution breaks upon the world that this loud cry message will swell and enlighten the earth with the glory of God. So while the little time of trouble is happening, while the phases of the Sunday law are getting more pronounced, we are going to be filled with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to greater and greater degrees, and with holy boldness, we'll be giving this message with greater power and glory, not for the glory of us, but for the glory of God. So rather than being afraid of the trouble around us, we're going to give the message fearlessly. And after the work is done, Ellen White says something about, should we have said what we had said? And then they say, no, if we could do it all over again, we'd stay it the same way. We'd give it again. Great Controversy 611 and 612. The angel who unites in the proclamation of the third angel's message is to lighten the world, the whole earth, with his glory. A work of worldwide extent and unwanted power is here foretold. Servants of God, with their faces lighted and shining with holy consecration, will hasten from place to place to place to proclaim the message from heaven. By thousands of voices all over the earth, the warning will be given. Isn't this exciting? I have people that have written me in, in regards to this series, and some are watching the UK, some are in Australia. I want to say hello to uh, Talia and her brothers that are watching there. But whether you're in Canada, the Caribbean, in Kenya, or Korea, wherever you are on the globe, you will be used by God in your corner of the earth to give this last message. We're not going to rely on one or two preachers, but it will be thousands of voices all over the earth. And I pray that I and you will be one of those voices. One of those individuals that say, here I am, Lord, use me. I don't know everything, but I'm going to say what I know. And your Holy Spirit's going to empower me with holy boldness. Sadly, if only all Seventh-day Adventists could be in that camp when that time comes. Fearlessly sharing the message. But we're told some pretty disturbing things. There is to be in the churches, she's referring to Seventh-day Adventist churches, a wonderful manifestation of the power of God, but it will not move upon those who have not humbled themselves before the Lord and opened the door of the heart by confession and repentance. That's Review and Herald Extra, December 23, 1890. 
It continues on, in the manifestation of that power which lightens the earth with the glory of God, they will see only something which in their blindness they think dangerous. Something which will arouse their fears and they will brace themselves to resist it. Because the Lord does not work according to their ideas and their expectations, they will oppose the work. Why? They say, should we not know the Spirit of God when we have been in the work so many years? Listen, friends, just because you've been in the work for many years does not mean that you recognize the voice of the Spirit of God. It doesn't mean that you've humbled yourself. Sadly, there's been a lot of books published recently that attack the very message that will prepare, I believe, God's people to stand to the end of time. There was an individual recently who came to present at one of our schools, and they've spent their entire career in ministry in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. They could retire probably any time. And in his presentation to our students, he was talking about all these times in earth's history when people got all stirred up and hot and bothered about things that are happening in current events and that Jesus was coming soon. And as he lists them off one after one after one, I kept thinking to myself, what's the point? Are you trying to convince us because Jesus hasn't come in the last 70 years that he's not coming? Friend, that is so off the wall thinking because it doesn't mean we're 70 years further away, we're 70 years closer. Don't try and convince us, oh, calm down. Don't be so bothered. What did Jesus say in Matthew 24, 12, and 13? The love of many will grow how? Cold. But he who endures to the end will be saved. The fact that Jesus didn't come just yet, we don't give up our hope. He says in verse 44 of Matthew 24, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. Friends, the call is to be ready. The message to our students should not be to calm down, but to be ready. The message to our community is not peace and safety, but to be ready. The message for ourselves is not life as usual. It's be ready. Paul also warns us, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, and they shall not escape. This is from Review and Herald, May 27, 1890. As men of influence close their own hearts, the third angel's message will not be comprehended. The light which will lighten the earth with its glory will be called a false light by those who refuse to walk in its advancing glory and so as the message is advancing in glory there'll be many that say there's no light in this we can't have victory over sin we can't be made like jesus before he returns this is fanaticism this is heresy don't accept this version of Adventism, some might say, when in reality this has been the version of Adventism that God has given to us from the very beginning. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5, 48? Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father is perfect. Father in heaven is perfect. Desire of Ages 3.11. This command, she's referencing Matthew 5, 48, is a promise. This isn't to intimidate, this is a promise. The plan of redemption contemplates our complete recovery from the power of Satan. Christ always separates the contrite soul from sin. But there are people saying you should bask in your sin. You can't change, you're human. Oh well, nothing we can do. 
To continue in, in Desire of Ages, it says, he come to destroy the works of the devil and he has made provision that the Holy Spirit shall be imparted to every repentant soul to keep him from sinning. He's made provision. It's there. Satan is jubilant when he hears the professed followers of Christ making excuses for their deformity of character. It is these excuses that lead to sin. There's no excuse for sinning, she says. How they can write and publish these books, I don't understand. Don't take this brand of Adventism. It's legalism. No, it's not. It's the empowerment of Jesus Christ living within me to overcome the sins in my life. Says a holy temper, a Christ-like life is accessible to every repenting, believing child of God. And so this idea that we'll just keep on sinning until Jesus comes, this is a Babylonian idea. And it's crept into our church. And it dumbs down the gospel to make men think we cannot have victory over sin. How does this make sense? The most powerful God in the universe is not powerful enough to give me victory over Satan and his sin. How does that make any sense? If this is the case, then the devil is more powerful than God and perhaps we should be bowing down and worshiping him. Don't tell me God's not powerful enough. The truth of the matter is we can overcome. How? Just as Jesus did. Through continual reliance on our heavenly Father. His life proves that one can fully depend on God to overcome every demon of hell. And so there are those in the church today that are rejecting the light that is needed for this time. But I believe it's these very truths that prepare us to receive the outpouring of the latter rain so we can receive the seal of God and give the loud cry message. What did Paul say in his last letter to Timothy before his execution? For the time will come 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their eyes from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Might as well enjoy it. Nothing we can do about it. Earlier in that same book, he says in chapter 3, verse 2, people will be lovers of themselves Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Looks to me like they have a sin problem. And why might that be? Because they have a form of godliness, but they're denying its power. I don't want to be part of that group. Or maybe I should say I'm tired of being part of that group that has a form of godliness but denies the power. Because when sin comes lurking around, I don't fall on my knees like I should. I don't claim the promises like I should. I don't memorize scripture like I should. I have the form of godliness and God says I have all the power. Tap into my power. Tap into my strength. Tap into my abilities. Let my peace, let my love, let my goodness and faithfulness overflow in your life. I mean, this idea is even right there in the Christmas story. Matthew 1.21 says, And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, 
for he will save his people not in their sins, but from their sins. Because it's that total faith, that total trust, that total dependence and reliance upon God that enables us to overcome sin in our lives. And as we learn those lessons of faith and trust and dependence and reliance in Christ and Christ alone, it are those lessons that will enable us to be recipients of the latter rain and to go through the final crisis of earth's history. Volume 5 of Testimonies 80 and 82. In the last solemn work, few great men will be engaged. God will work a work in our day that but few anticipate. He will raise up and exalt among us those who are taught rather by the unction of his spirit than by the outward train of scientific institutions. These facilities are not to be despised or condemned. They are ordained of God, but they can furnish only the exterior qualifications. God will manifest that he is not dependent on learned, self-important mortals. Now I'm a product of our institutions. I went to Adventist Elementary School and high school and college and Adventist Seminary. I have my doctorate from Andrews University. And she says these institutions are not to be despised. But just because I have my doctorate doesn't make me more qualified to talk about our message than anybody else. On the flip side, some people don't even accept anything that people say with degrees because they've been tainted. They don't know what they're talking about, so they just discredit them. And we're not supposed to do that either. The point here is that the higher learning has its place when we are not despised or condemned, but we focus not on the exterior qualifications, but those that are fully surrendered to the Holy Spirit in their lives. That's the point. So at the end, we're not looking for a few great men. We're not looking to any one person, our favorite evangelist or speaker or ministry to guide us, but rather it will be thousands of voices united to give the last message of warning to the world. And so in summary, in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 3, the church has played the harlot. I think it's 3, verse 1. I think that's backwards. Church has played the harlot. In Acts 3, 19 to 20, we call... We have the call to repent, therefore, and be converted. There's the experience of repentance, that your sins may be blotted out. That happens at the end of the world and the cleansing of the sanctuary. So the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So when the sins of God's people are blotted out, then the Holy Spirit is poured out, and that is the latter rain experience. So we see the outpouring of the latter rain spoken of as times of refreshing in Acts 3.19. We see this also in the parable of the ten virgins. When the midnight cry is given in Matthew 25 and the wise virgins have the early rain experience. They have the extra vessel of oil for their lamps and now they receive the latter rain to give the loud cry message of Revelation 18. And we saw in the first part of this message that the midnight cry and the loud cry are given when the national Sunday law is passed. And that's when the sleeping church wakes up. And when those laws propel our message like it could not have been propelled before when the latter rain is poured out in its fullness. Then following the parable of the ten virgins, continues for a short time, but the door is shut. And they go in with the bridegroom to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the close of probation. And the soon coming of Jesus Christ that soon follows. And going back to Acts 3, verse 20, it says that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before. Another reference to the coming of Jesus. And it's in the language of the ripening of the harvest that we see it spoken of as well in Revelation 14, 
beginning verse 14, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So friends, we have a special message at this time in earth's history. And we want to be ready for Jesus to come. And I believe, and I think you believe too, that he's coming very soon. And he wants to pour out that Holy Spirit on us in the form of the latter rain. And who is this latter rain poured out to? Those that are clipped in. Those who obey him. Those who repent. Those who turn away from the idols of this world and return to Christ and allow Jesus to come in. Friends, Jesus is knocking on the door of our hearts. Let's stop glorying in the shame of our nakedness as a church. Rather, let's accept Christ and his righteousness for all that it truly is, which includes the fruits of the Spirit, includes the character of Jesus. And by grace through faith, we can receive all of those blessings so we can be fitted for the outpouring of the latter rain, so we can give the loud cry. Because I believe the Sunday law is coming soon. I believe we're witnessing the end of time. And by God's grace... I want to be fitted for that time. I want to be fitted with the character of Jesus to allow him to do his work in me. I want to be clipped in when those storms come that the Holy Spirit will hold me close and not let me go. Our Heavenly Father, this morning we want to come to you in humble repentance to how lightly we have taken your word. Lord, we long to be forgiven of our sins. We want to confess where we have erred, where we need help, where we have been overcome time and time again. But we believe that you are more powerful than anything the devil can throw at us. And so, Lord, as we repent, as we long for true heart conversion, as we ask for the outpouring of your Spirit, as you blot out the sins in our lives, Lord, may you do a work in us that will bring glory to your name, that your character may shine forth, that people will see you and be drawn, is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org